BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, they're calling him Trump Untamed. Oh, my God. You mean he was tamed during the first year of his presidency? <laughs> what do you say, everybody? Whoa, it's a Monday. Monday, March 19. Uh, can you believe it? Yep, still recovering. Some of you, I know, from uh, St. Patty's Day celebration on uh, Saturday, March 17. But, uh, hey, that's behind us. We're into a whole new week and a whole new mess of news, a messy news, to tell the truth. Uh, here in Washington, D.C., that's where you find us in our studio on Capitol Hill, reaching out to you all across this great land of ours with the news of the day, uh, which uh, goes all the way across from, uh, yes, Donald Trump just going wild over the over the weekend with his attacks on special counsel Robert Mueller and now former deputy director of the FBI, uh, Andy McCabe, and uh, James Comey, former FBI director. Donald Trump just cannot get enough of attacking all three of them and the entire FBI and the entire Justice Department. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump caught in another great big fat lie, this one with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and he doesn't deny that lie. In fact, he even brags uh, about it. The government is careening toward another shutdown this Friday. Haven't we seen this bad horror movie before? Uh, And yes, indeed, it looks like Democrats have a big edge, edge up over Republicans for taking back the House this year. So much to talk about. So little time. So we'll jump right into it and look forward and invite your comments, as always, on Twitter at BP Show. Let's hear from you what you think about the news of the day. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news here on a Monday. Bill, did you do a bracket this year? No. Pre-NCAA tournament? No. No, I didn't do one I either. just let that uh, 98-year-old nun fill out my bracket. <laughs> so. Sister, well, Sister Jean. She's probably got a better shot than anybody to win this whole thing because it's, of course, it's March Madness. And uh, people's brackets are busted all around the mm-hmm, country. Mm-hmm. Probably the one that busted the bracket worse than anything else was Friday night. Number one seed, University of Virginia, lost to number 16 seed, UMBC, from right here in Maryland. 
just want to be clear. Just up the road, ball my way. This has never yeah. happened before. Amazing. It's never happened before in the history yeah. of the NCAA yeah. tournament. The number one seed always beats the number 16 seed in their bracket. That did not happen uh, on Friday night in Charlotte, North Carolina, as UMBC <laughs> beat UVA. It was great. That 74 was great. to 54. I know. I know. They it really wasn't even it close. No. Uh, yeah. It was a terrible game by UVA, of course. Uh and then, Are you ready to jump on board the UMBC bandwagon? They're going to go all the way, except no, they yeah. lost to Kansas State over the weekend. Right, I mean, these, yeah. this this tournament moved really, really quickly. So we are down to the Sweet 16. Loyola, uh, number uh, 11 seed, they have pulled off a couple of different upsets to uh, make it into the Sweet 16. Um, no other major upsets that are still in the Sweet 16. Uh, maybe Syracuse. Syracuse beat TCU and Michigan State. Uh, but all the f- other familiar names are still there. So just wanted to see if your bracket was holding up all right, Bill. Uh, since I didn't fill one out, it's holding it's up too. It's just fine. Uh, we go to Chino, California, where over the weekend a prisoner was reported as missing. Someone had broken out of the jail. Everything went on lockdown. Everybody was trying to find this one uh, mm-hmm. uh, inmate that yeah. had gone lost. So here's the problem. He did not go lost. He was just asleep. He had gone to an area of the prison where he wasn't supposed to be on prison grounds, and he had fallen asleep. So he hadn't escaped. He hadn't gone missing. He was just taking a little nap. False alarm. He was just taking a little nap. So false alarm, like you said, no big deal. Everybody's fine. Gino, the great eastern uh, inland, or rather, the inland empire. Been out there many, many, many times. The Chino Hills. is the Bill Press Show. You're fired. Yep, Donald Trump finally gets to say it, except he didn't say it himself, just like he didn't fire Rex Tillerson himself. He had Jeff Sessions fire uh, Andy McCabe, the uh, former, now uh, deputy director of the FBI, just two days before his government pension would kick in. Talk about petty, small-time... Sort of a childish rant, but that's what we expect from the Trump administration. Hello, everybody. Uh, what do you say? And a welcome, uh, welcome to the Bill Press Show here on this Monday, March 19. So good to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us as we come to you live coast to coast online, on the radio, on television, on uh, on our podcast, any way we can reach you. It's good to have you on board to discuss the issues of the day, and it is going to be a busy, busy week. Every week, it seems, uh, is just full of breaking, every day, full of breaking news. Uh, The pace doesn't stop, uh, and it certainly did not slow down over the weekend. If anything, it just quickened up. So, yes, we come to you from our studio on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., joining you wherever you are in this great land of ours uh, online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And uh, you will also, of course, find our podcast at BillPressShow.com anytime during the day. You want to tune in and pick up parts of the program you missed or listen to the entire program if you missed the whole thing um, or just 
pick up little snippets here and there. It's all up at our podcast, BillPressShow.com. And don't forget to sign up when you go online as well so you're part of our team. How about it? Great to see you on the radio this morning out in the greater Chicago area on WCPT and throughout Indiana on Indiana Talks. And we are there with you as well, of course, on the great free speech TV. And we've got to start out um, by uh, congratulating uh, the big winner. It was a very close election. We weren't sure how it was going to turn out. Uh, They were counting the absentee ballots until late, 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 late at night, early, early this morning. Uh, But uh, we're we're, um, pleased to report that uh, Vladimir Putin did squeak out a victory. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Congratulations. uh, It was tough. It was tight. You know, it was the tightest election since uh, the... Pennsylvania 18 congressional district <laughs> with, uh, with Connor Lamb, uh, which still hasn't been decided, but um, but just yeah, just an, just enough real nail biter, just enough for Vlad to get another uh, <laughs> <clears throat> uh, another six years, right? Yeah, can you imagine? So we've got Vladimir Putin unchained and Donald Trump untamed. Yeah, what could possible? What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> right? Oh God, <laughs> oh, God I'm telling you. <laughs> Uh, at any rate, and by the way, you know what? Here's what I'm afraid of. So in, in the last week, two weeks, President Xi of China changes the rules so he can be there for life. Vladimir Putin, in effect, changes the rules because, you know, this is not his last term, right? No. No, no. He'll, he'll keep running as long as he can. So the two of them have decided they're going to um, um, serve for life. You don't think maybe Donald Trump is thinking about it? It's a globe of dictators. The entire planet is inhabited by dictators. You don't think he's trying to figure out, hey, if they could pull it off, why can't I? I'm telling you. I'm telling you. That is in his head. You know that it is. Meanwhile, lots of trouble over the weekend. Look, there's no doubt about it. I mean, Donald Trump is obsessed, obsessed with Robert Mueller with the FBI, with this investigation, and he can't let go of it. The best thing he ought to do is just let them do their thing, as several people said over the weekend. If he didn't do anything wrong, what's he got to worry about? Let Mueller, let it take its course. Let him pick off the people that Mueller can find, whether it's Rick Man- uh, Paul Manafort or Rick Gates or Michael Flynn or George Papadopoulos or whatever and pick them off for whatever uh, things that they did wrong, criminal activity. But again, if he's convinced that he did not collude, he did not obstruct justice, then he knows they can't do anything to him. Just let it go. But he cannot do that. And this weekend, his most uh, offensive tweets of all were for the first time he actually didn't just attack the investigation, didn't just call it a witch hunt, uh, didn't just call it a political stunt, you know, cooked up by the Democrats. He he went after Robert Mueller by name. And everybody has said, whatever you do, don't attack the credibility of the special counsel. You know, he was appointed <coughs> by your administration, <laughs> Mr. President. He is working for your Justice Department. Don't attack him, but Trump could not help himself. He did so personally this weekend, uh, and that could really backfire. I, I have the Trump tweets yeah. about Mueller, because he had tweets right. about a lot of things over the weekend. Okay. Okay. We'll, 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 we'll read the Mueller tweets. We'll read the Mueller tweets. <laughs> Pardon me. The best thing that the White House staff has done in a long time mm. 
is they sent Donald Trump over to play golf yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, otherwise it would have been it would have continued that cascade of tweets, right? Yeah, because it well, went all day Saturday. It was really interesting because one of the people in the press corps uh, said that they were whisked to a Trump golf course, and it was like they were given no time mm-hmm. and told you need to run to the press van because we are leaving yeah. right this second, or I we're just not going to bring him. Finally, decide we've got to get him out. We got to get him out. We got to get him away from his phone. So, but before he did, here are the tweets. Here are the tweets about Robert Mueller. This first one was Saturday night, wild Saturday night, I guess. Uh, the Mueller probe should have never been started in that there was no collusion mm. again, and there was no crime. It was based on fraudulent activities and a fake dossier paid for by Crooked Hillary and the DNC and improperly used in all capital letters FISA court for surveillance of my campaign. And again, all capital letters. He ends the tweet with witch hunt. He then goes on. This one was yesterday morning, Sunday morning. Uh, why does the Mueller team have 13 hardened Democrats, yeah, some right. big crooked Hillary supporters, and zero Republicans? Another Dem recently added. Mm-hmm. Does anyone think this is fair? And yet there is, all capital letters, no collusion. Yeah. Uh, and that's the yeah. last thing he tweeted, which was 22 hours ago. Right. So there was a threefold attack uh, on the Mueller investigation uh, on, on on the part of the White House uh, and uh, Donald Trump himself this week. The first was having Jeff Sessions fire uh, Andy McCabe, which again was a, a was a petty, cheap shot. Uh, two days, two more days of government service and Andy McCabe would have had his full pension. Uh, they fired him just to spite him, uh, arguing uh, that uh, a report that is about to come out, hasn't come out yet, will say that he might have leaked information on the uh, on the investigation. We haven't seen the report I mean, so we have to kind of take their word that that's what the report says at any rate. Um, but uh, they, they, they just had to kind of show, you know, how, how, how mean and ugly they are. Uh, and again, despite uh, and firing uh, Andy McCabe, uh, which, which they did. And uh, McCabe, McCabe fired back, by the way, good for him, and said, look, uh, I've been interviewed by the Mueller investigation. Uh, they're trying to destroy my credibility as a witness. But I took notes, like James Comey, I took notes of my conversations with Donald Trump, and I've turned them over to Robert Mueller. So that is now part of the investigation. Donald Trump says, I never saw him take any notes when he was talking to me. Well, maybe he didn't. Maybe he did it. I would, you know, you're, if I'm sitting talking to the president of the United States, I'm not going to be sitting there taking notes, but as soon as I leave, I damn well am. Okay, all right. I'm put sorry. My, put my observations and 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 thoughts down. I, I'm sorry to keep going back to the Trump's Twitter feed, but he, but, as yeah. you just mentioned, right? Uh, he, he talked about but, Andrew McCabe. He says uh, this was yesterday morning. Spent very little time with Andrew McCabe, but he never took notes when he was with me. I don't believe he made memos except to help his own agenda, probably at a later date. Same with lying James Comey. Can we call them, capital letters, fake memos? (laughs) Yeah, right. right. So first thing was firing Andy McCabe. By the way, a little sidebar, uh, our good friend Mark Buchan, a congressman from uh, Wisconsin, uh, co-chair of the Progressive Caucus, said, hey, Andy McCabe needs only two more days to, for his pension to kick in, two more days of government service anywhere. By the way, he could be a guard at the African-American Museum. He could do anything. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right? 
He could, right. And so uh, Mark Buchanan said, I'll hire you on my staff to do campaign security. That's good. That's a big issue. Voting security, voter security. And uh, you can stay as long as you want. You can still stay, certainly stay two days so you get your entire pension. Uh, I hope Andy McCabe takes that job or some job. Or some job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to show that uh, that there, there are ways of getting around this petty uh, Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions. So the first thing, firing James, uh, firing um, Andy McCabe. The second blow was he had his he had his lawyer John Dowd come out and say, "Hey, we got to end this investigation right now." Okay, Andy McCabe is gone. We know James Comey started this whole investigation. Robert Mueller must end this investigation right now. John Dowd insists that he never talked to Donald Trump before he sent that tweet out. B.S. Yeah, I call B.S. on that one. You know he did. Because right after he did, Donald Trump followed up himself and attacked Mueller with the tweet that you just read, Peter, about having so many Democrats and it was all started by James Comey. By the way, which I find a little curious because for the last year, Donald Trump has been saying the investigation was started by Hillary Clinton. <laughs> uh, and Well, started by the Democrats because they couldn't accept that Hillary won. Now he's saying it was all started by James Comey because Comey didn't like him. Are you implying that our... Our president can't get his story straight. Uh, yeah, more than implying. No, I'm offended. Uh, and then the White House now has come out this morning and said, uh, no, uh, the president is uh, not planning on firing Robert Mueller. But it sure looks like it, particularly because, as we know, last week uh, we found out that Robert Mueller has subpoenaed, issued a subpoena for documents related to the Trump family financial ties to a Russian oligarchs and Russia organizations and the Kremlin prior to uh, Donald Trump running running for president. So um, we talked about that last week, whether or not uh, Donald Trump is really going to fo- fa- follow through with his pledge to fire Mueller if he crossed this red line of looking into his financial uh, dealings. Um, uh, at any rate, that's kind of where things uh, stand right now. And the reaction to this idea that it, what looks like Donald Trump building up toward firing Robert Mueller, maybe even this week, brought some counter reaction yesterday, not just from Democrats, but from Republicans. Uh, Trey Gowdy, a man we very seldom agree with, Trey Gowdy saying, hey, look, this is not the way to handle this. If you're innocent, what do you have to worry about? So to suggest that Mueller should shut down and that all he is looking at is collusion, if you have an innocent client, Mr. Dowd, act like it. Yep. Yeah. By the way, that's the best advice, right? Your client's innocent. You're innocent. Just let Mueller do his thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just trying to get out in front of it and control it and change the story and make up new facts about it. You know, it it looks guilty. It looks guilty. And also, it is not going to influence the investigation at all. Mueller is like, you know, he's a freight train. He's gone down. We've seen that. We never know what he's up to. And then he drops another bombshell. He is he is on track. And Donald Trump cannot derail him unless unless, again, he does fire him. Lindsey Graham has said this before. And as we've seen, Lindsey Graham talks tough. But then he still buddies up to Donald Trump every chance that he can get. Nonetheless, he made an important point with Jake Tapper uh, yesterday about what would happen were uh, Donald Trump to fire the special counsel. 
Well, as I said before, if he tried to do that, that would be the beginning of the end of his presidency because we're a rule of law nation. I mean, thank you, Lindsay. But I have to tell you, I wonder if yeah. that's the case. Yeah, I think Lindsey Graham would be the first one to say this is outrageous. We cannot stand this, and then do absolutely freaking nothing. Uh, there I, was a there was a really telling tweet over the weekend. Maggie um, Haberman, who who knows Trump better than any other reporter that there is, right? right. She's covered yep. it for a long, long time, and she put out a tweet that said, uh, essentially, I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing. She said. Donald Trump is now seeing what the Republicans will let him get away with. Yep. yep. His attacks on Robert Mueller and his firing of Andrew McCabe were all a test to see whether or not Republicans will come out and actually say, this is too much. This is too much. You've gone too far. And Lindsey Graham did, even though we know how much his word is worth. Trey Gowdy did, even though he's leaving in a couple of mm-hmm. months. And Jeff Flake did, too, by the and way. And Jeff Flake did, too. But Jeff he's Flake another did too, Lindsey but Graham. He's another one of those guys who's going to vote with Trump no matter what. And none of the other real Republicans in leadership came out and said a damn thing. No. Nobody said a thing. No. So the idea that everybody uses this phrase, I've used it myself, that if he fires Robert Mueller, that would provoke a constitutional crisis. Yeah, but what does that mean? Does that really mean that Republicans would finally... Overnight, discover some backbone and stand up to Trump and say, this is too far. We are a nation of law. You cannot. You're under a criminal investigation. You can't fire the prosecutor or the investigator or the attorney who's investigating. You cannot do this under our rule of law and start impeachment hearings. I from this crowd, I don't think so. I think they will roll over once again. And you know what? Donald Trump knows it. He has he's got the number on Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. They are jello. By the way, uh, on our Twitter page or on our Twitter feed at BP show at BP show on Friday, we asked uh, our followers, will Donald Trump try to fire Robert Mueller? We asked the question. You get to vote on it after hundreds of votes. Eighty eight percent said yes. Yeah. Twelve percent said no. So. The people have spoken. Yeah, the people have spoken. Uh, and Donald Trump has spoken, too, of course, which means uh, Donald Trump has lied. I mean, there's there, the, you can put the equal sign. Donald Trump speaks. Donald Trump lies. Uh, the little research, and thanks to our good friend Peter Baker, too, from the, uh, from the New York Times, uh, who had a piece on this on Sunday. The, uh, we know that Donald Trump lies, okay? But the extent of his lies, when you look back over the last year, is really overwhelming. And they they say, well, every president lies. Well, yeah, that you could probably take every president except for George Washington uh, <laughs> and find out one thing he lied about. You know, Bill Clinton lied about Monica Lewinsky. I guess Barack Obama lied about something. I don't, I don't know. Well, remember he said, if you like your health care plan, you can keep it. Sure. It wasn't really a lie, but it was an exaggeration. At any rate. But Donald Trump lies all the time about everything. And then the latest, of course, when he lied about the trade deficit with um, with Canada, lied in the face of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Last week, he bragged about the fact that he didn't know what he was talking about, but he made it up 
and just told that lie to Justin Trudeau that we have a trade surplus, a trade deficit with uh, Canada, when in fact we have a trade surplus uh, with Canada. Uh, at any rate, so PolitiFact, and that's it, you know, PolitiFact, they got the Pulitzer Prize because they're right down the middle. They take things that politicians say, Democrats or Republicans, and they put them to the test and they rate them. True, mostly true, false, mostly false, or the worst is liar, liar, pants on fire. Okay. Donald Trump, since he became a presidential candidate, PolitiFact has evaluated, get this, more than 500 statements made by Donald Trump. 69% of them nice, right, are either false, they rated false, mostly false, or liar, liar, pants on fire. 69%. Which means that 7 out of 10 things that Donald Trump says are a lie. Think about that. Seven out of ten things he says are a lie. That's amazing, and it's disgusting, and it's shameful. And at what point do we say, you know, this is too much? We mean, at what point do we say, we're not going to let him debase the presidency this way? And it's gotten to the point where, well, the American people can't believe him. Foreign allies, foreign leaders can't believe him. Look at Justin Trudeau, right? Uh, Theresa May. They can't believe him. They don't believe him. Members of Congress, if they're honest, can't believe him. Anything he says. He has zero, it's, it's, it's amazing, zero, zero appreciation or respect for the truth. He doesn't even know what the truth is. It doesn't even come into his head that what I say as president of the United States or just as a human being should be like maybe true, like maybe we should care about that. You know, it's it's we all grew up with a myth, right? That I cannot tell a lie. I chopped it down with my own little hatchet, right? George Washington, and, and that was a myth we all grew up with. And we found even you know what we wanted to believe it. Even when we found out it was a made up story. We wanted to believe it. Why? Because he's George Washington, and he grew up to be president of the United States, and we want to believe that we can believe the president of the United States. So we've gone from the little president, little George Washington, or the first president who could not tell a lie, to Donald Trump who cannot tell the truth. Right? In our history. That's, that's, now, um, is that progress? It's something, uh, man. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, certainly it's not progress. But, again, my question is, you know who's going to look bad when this is all over? Not Donald Trump. We are. If we put up with this, if we tolerate this, particularly if Republican leaders continue to tolerate these lies, cascade of lies, we're the ones who are go- that history is going to look and say, they're the cowards. They're the ones who didn't speak up. It's not. It's our silence which speaks louder than Donald Trump's lies. Man, it just really bugs me. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, other stuff going on I want to mention briefly before we take a break here. <clears throat> Wall Street Journal. I took a look at uh, in the wake of uh, Pennsylvania 18. We'll be talking about that, by the way, in the next half hour with Ben Kamazar from The Hill. 
Uh, took a look at in the wake of 2018, uh, how Americans are feeling about Democrats taking control of Congress. Uh, who do you think should uh, take over the Congress, Democrats or Republicans? According to the latest Wall Street Journal poll, it is 50 percent say Democrats, 40 percent say Republicans. I was at that low. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But at least it's a double double digit uh, yeah. edge there for, yeah. for Democrats. Uh, and yes, we'll be talking about this a little bit later, too. Uh, it has come out that Facebook, man. So Steve Bannon and his mega donor, Robert Mercer, formed this little company called Cambridge Analytica, where they're going to help the Trump campaign figure out how to target voters and get those Trumpers out for Donald Trump and identify them and who they are. And where do they go for their information? And where do they get all the assistance that they could possibly want for free from Facebook? Identification or information data on 50 million people, 50 million Americans. And Facebook says they had no idea that Cambridge Analytica was stealing this info, was taking this information. Yeah, that's just unbelievable. How did that? How did that happen? Uh, our good friend Senator Amy Klobuchar has uh, has uh, demanded that uh, Mark Zuckerberg himself come up in front of Congress and explain how they could let this happen. This is just like letting the Russians buy all those ads and pay for them in rubles, and then they claim that they had no idea that the Russians were buying these ads. You know, it, it, we, I think we, I, I feel like we've reached a, a point with Facebook, Facebook right? Is, where for a while God. we've known that. Like, this is the equivalent. 50 million people, right? Like, they know more information about you than, like, your own country does, right? Like, Mm -hmm. it's the Mm -hmm. size of multiple countries, but they have way more information about what you like, what you watch, what you do, where you live, where you frequent, who who your friends are, who your closer friends are. Like, they have everything they need to know about you. And... For it to be weaponized or politicized, it would not be that hard. No, no. And uh, and you know, Bannon yeah. figured it out. And Facebook uh, looked, if they knew, they looked the other way. Uh, and yes, indeed, uh, this is the week uh, when uh, on the 23rd, Friday, uh, the government runs out of money again. Everybody oh, that. Says, oh, yeah, oh, that. Oh, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this old movie just keeps replaying. And it's back again this week. Uh, and by the way, there are some issues. What are they going to do about? They they say, well, we're, 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 yeah, we're going to get we're going to resolve this by the by by Friday. But there are some outstanding issues. Um, three of them, I think of right away. One is: is there going to be any money for the wall? Donald Trump wants it. Democrats don't, rightfully so. Uh, two: is there going to be any protection for Dreamers this time around? Uh, they punted the last two times. Now we're past the deadline for the Dreamers. Dreamers going to be included in this or not? Democrats want it. Republicans don't. Donald Trump doesn't. And there's one other issue, which I find really strange. Donald Trump says he'll veto any bill and shut down the government if there's any money in there for a new tunnel, railroad tunnel, between New Jersey and New York City. This is the most heavily traveled rail line in the country. You know, I take it a lot up to New York. This is Amtrak. This is freight. This is everything. The commuter trains everything going into New York City from New Jersey in a tunnel that there's, as far as I know, there's one track in each direction, that's all, that dates from like 
1850 or something. And Donald Trump, Chris Christie vetoed this before, and now Donald Trump is saying, if there's any money in there to improve a tunnel into New York City, he's going to veto the spending bill. Guy is out of control. <clears throat> yeah, and this is this is the New York developer too, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, God. All right, what's happening, by the way? It ain't over yet up in Pennsylvania. They're still moving around up there and already looking toward the next election, which will be November in a, a newly configured district. Ben Kamazar from The Hill joins us next here on The Bill Press Show. So uh, stay tuned. we got a lot more coming up here on this Monday, March 19th. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is The Bill Press Show. What do you say on a Monday, March 19? Uh, how about it? It is the Bill Press Show. Good to have you with us. And um, we've got lots and lots to talk about in the news today. This is a big week for a lot of reasons. We're coming to you live, by the way, from Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, where we're brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. Yes, good men and women of our firefighting departments all across the country. We count on them. They never let us down. They're there protecting American families Every day, under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, check out their website at iaff.org. Uh, and while you're uh, on the website, this is the week. My new book actually comes out. It's in the bookstores this week. It's on Amazon, or it's still up on our website. Uh, that's the best deal at billpressshow.com. From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire, all about a lot of the fun that I've had and the great people I've had a chance to work with so far. I call it my memoir, Part One. Um, If you haven't already uh, ordered your signed copy, uh, do so now. 60% discount at our website at thebillpressshow.com. On the uh, political news of the day to help us through it, we welcome to the studio Ben Kamazar from The Hill. Hey, Ben, nice to see you. My pleasure. And uh, we've been uh, stirring it up already this morning uh, with uh, Peter's been tracking the responses here. Yes, indeed. On Twitter at BP Show, on Twitter at BP Show. You just did uh, uh, a little examination of the Donald Trump lies that he's told. Uh, Yeah. The PolitiFact has been keeping up with. Uh, David Fenstermaker says, how can you tell that Donald Trump is lying? Are his lips moving? Yeah. Uh, KG says Donald Trump lies the way that most people breathe. Uh, and also, I, I thought this was a really interesting comment. Kurt Herner talking about uh, the difference between Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. He says Bill Clinton was able to survive removal from office because he let Ken Starr do his job and he kept the, and Bill Clinton kept the trains running on time. He stayed silent and stated that the investigation needed to end so we could move on uh, to work for the American people. Then when the investigation was over, of course, he yeah. ended up surviving. That's no, a very good he point. Surviving. Uh, and, you know, if just we, shut up. Let it happen. Right. Uh, and 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 they did something else. They hired Lanny Davis. Yeah. And they brought him in. And Mike McCurry, as press secretary, said, nope, not going to touch that. Talk to Lanny Davis. Yeah. And so the White House officially compartmentalized. And Clinton wouldn't didn't talk about it. Mike McCurry wouldn't talk about it. And it was all this separate little operation. And they just kind of let it go, which was very smart for the hand, for them to handle it that way. It isolated Clinton. Yeah. Donald Trump 
will not allow no, himself to be No, it's not going to happen. Right. It's not going to happen. By the way, uh, I mentioned we're on Twitter at BP Show. We just put up a new poll. Uh, will the GOP stand up to Donald Trump if he tries to fire Mueller? Uh, you can go there now and vote. We'd love to get your vote there on Twitter at BP Show. Okay. Uh, while we're distracted here, I just sure. have to mention Ben and Peter. Because um, uh, Ben started out by asking before we got on the air, uh, about my weekend, and I was trying to think back. What did I do this weekend? Uh, saw a great movie. Got it. Just got recommend to both. You finally saw Black Panther? No, I haven't. They don't okay. need my money. They I don't decided. need your money. No, fair. But you know, since this is an era of strong men, right, and yeah. dictators, I thought I should bone up on a little bit. So I went to see The Death of Stalin. Oh, nice. It is hilarious. It really is. Yeah. The cast is just like spectacular. The right? cast I is spectacular. It no, it's really it's. But if you could take only that Iannucci, that's his name, right? Armando Iannucci. Armando Iannucci. If you could take a mass murderer and make him funny, <laughs> Iannucci could do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But watching the Politburo deal with uh, the death of the actual death of Stalin, it's hilarious. It really is. Yeah. I'll have to go see it. I, I see just about everything he does because he's nobody understands politics better. Like the yeah. real, po- the real, what's really going on yeah. in politics. Highly recommended. Uh, a stu- uh, the theater was packed, and uh, everybody, everybody enjoyed it. A lot of, lot of, lot of, lot of great laughs. Nice. Uh, not so many laughs up in uh, for the Republicans up in Pennsylvania's 18th. Ben, you've been covering that. You've been up there. Um, is it over yet? Depends on your definition of over, I guess. You know, <laughs> officially, no, it's not over. We're still dealing with who uh, has to declare it over. I mean, I mean, I think we all just kind of, you know, collectively decide that. No, I mean, so if the situation where they're still counting ballots, um, military ballots, because you know, if you're serving on a base in Afghanistan, for example, mail doesn't exactly, you know, go. So it's not, it's not a seamless process. So they let military ballots come in until Tuesday. So. By the tomorrow. tomorrow, yep. So through tomorrow, you we we will expect to have all the military ballots in, and then um, at that point, sort of all the votes will be counted. Basically, the 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 short end of it is that there are not enough ballots out that we are aware of to change the outcome. Um, Connor Lamb is up by a little more than six hundred votes. There are not we don't hundred votes out there. But once those votes are counted, then we kind of move into this next phase of. How badly does the you know does the Saccone campaign, do the GOP state and national party um, want to press this? They have been talking about a recount, which um, could be filed by just a couple voters in each county uh, could call for one. They're also talking about a potential lawsuit um, claiming voter like irregularities. So both of those are kind of you know we're kind of waiting and seeing whether those next steps are going to be taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and if so, it would be the county. Registrar who would say, "Okay, we've completed our count. Connor Lamb is the winner." So each of those four counties. So you know there four, would be each these. County would, each of yeah. the four counties would do their would finally if would finish their votes, then they would submit their votes as the pre-certified vote, and then it opens up a five-day window for challenges, and those challenges could be legal challenges or recount challenges. So, so Connor Lamb could not be sworn in until. That time, presumably right. until this is all settled, um, you know, no. If there is not not a legal challenge, um, it should be early April when the county boards meet and officially certify. But if you throw a lawsuit into the mix, it kind of just then the, the timing comes up to the courts. Uh, so all of this money, all of this effort uh, will last uh, roughly six months, right? <laughs> it is the joke of this entire thing. You know, everyone dumped a Brinks truck amount of money into this district, except redistricting is going to 
just get rid of it in November. We have, we have a district uh, map that will no longer exist, and now all of the money that was spent, um, great, nice. I'm sure it's going to be helpful for will the district. Will it change the district substantially? Do we know? Well, yes. Yeah, Do we know so what the new district looks like? We're not positive because there's now there are more legal challenges. But the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania has drawn a map, and that seems to be the map barring any crazy circumstance. Right. Basically – just really quickly, what they do is think of Pittsburgh, the southern part of Pittsburgh, more conservative. All of that is kind of one district, the, suburb, the suburban areas. Um, that's one district that's even more conservative than this old 18th seat was. So you're expecting not too much resistance for Republicans there. Rick Saccone is running. Could be some other primary situation there, but most likely that's going to be a Republican seat. Where Lamb's going to probably run is that district to the north of Pittsburgh, where he's going to basically come up into a toss-up race against current Representative Keith Rothfuss. Oh, I see. So uh, it won't be so. Sacone and Lamb could both run again in November, but not necessarily against each other. Yes, and they could both, you know, be serving in Congress together come January. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> after Jeez. all of this. God, they could have offices. That that would be the ultimate irony, right? <laughs> For the two of them, both to be in Congress, offices side by side in the same office building, having gone through $10 million for a campaign that amounted to nothing. It would sound about right for like the direction of 2018. You know, the direction our politics is going is a whole lot of spending for a whole lot of nothing. <laughs> no, uh, no, it really does. So um, what lessons did Democrats learn from uh, Pennsylvania 18, yeah. if any? Well, I mean, I think the Democrats, you know, nationally and locally are pouring over this district because, you know, any time you can flip a district that was this Republican, I mean, this was a district that went 20 points for Trump, but this isn't just like a Trump phenomenon. I mean, Romney, McCain, you know, oh, it's it's yeah. a district that even though there's a Democratic registration advantage, it's really one of these, you know, more of a, more of anachronistic things where the Dem people that identify as Democrats really in, in this part of the country don't really identify with sort of your national democratic party on issues. So I think there's a lot of lessons that potentially can be the so-called Reagan Democrats. Exactly. I guess, huh? Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they're people who are far more conservative than the, I feel like the party has kind of, you know, moved away from them. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a ton of, uh, you know, a ton of implications here. I mean, first off, I think the one that Democrats and Republicans will agree on is their big thing is and afterwards is Republicans have been saying this candidates matter. I mean, you had, a central casting Connor Lamb, strong record as a prosecutor, didn't have a voting record to, you know, to pinpoint. And he ran pretty, you know, he ran, ran as a far more conservative Democrat than you might see in the national. But that's what fit the district. And but, then, but I would add, but still uh, as a Democrat. Sure, still as a Democrat. And I think you're having a lot of revisionist history trying to paint him as a Republican. And when I'd say more conservative Democrat, I mean further to the right on the ideological spectrum, but still, you know, comfortably in the left. I mean, this is a guy that supported, um, you know, supported the, um, you know, uh, efforts to keep Obamacare in place, you know, opposed the tax cuts. It's certainly not a, you know, card-carrying Republican in, you know. It, it's interesting. They've really tried to paint him as what he is not. You're right. He's, if, whatever phrase we want to use, an establishment or a centrist Democrat, but he did, fit, who fit the district for sure. But so Donald Trump says, he supported my tax cuts. No, he didn't. He said they were a ripoff. Right. Well, and you have this, you know, he also um, believes he's Catholic. He believes um, d he does not believe that, abor that abortion personally. But, but he, he supports would, the right to, to choose. And he right. said that he would go, he would vote against a 20 week abortion ban, for example. So it's an interesting right. caveat yeah, when you have right. Paul Ryan saying, you know, 
a conservative, pro-gun, pro-life yeah. candidate won. Right. Well, if right. that's pro-life, then it sort of changes the goalposts on who is pro-life and who's totally. not pro-life. No, totally. They're really trying to reinvent him again for 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 what he is not. So, is the message um, let the candidate fit the district? I mean, I think that's a, it's certainly a compelling message, right? I mean, you have that you have that sort of what I think most people would suggest that helped Lamb here. I mean, also. You know, you also have this interesting, you know, rebirth of labor, certainly not to say that labor has gone anywhere, but no. Democratic Party hasn't necessarily been working hand in glove with labor in some of these communities. But I mean, I went to some labor rallies where people were fired up for I mean, for lamb. And it was interesting. It really looked like, you know, these rallies that did not look like typical Democratic rallies had tons of workers, you know, all together, you know, the, the most most of the energy I saw for Lamb was was from union mill folks. Uh, I, no, I I was going to ask you about that because I think that's a big story. Uh, certainly, one of the biggest stories out of uh, the Pennsylvania eighteen, which is, you know, the 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 grassroots activity there. The organization was really it was the coal work, it was the uh, miners, uh, and the steel workers, uh, and these are people. Their leadership has been always loyal to the Democratic Party, but their members have been um, less so, right? Maybe 50 percent of them might have voted Republican because, they, again, they felt the Democratic Party had abandoned them and their key issues. And they came home for Connor Lamb. Yeah. And they've got to come home for Democrats if Democrats are going to take back the House and the Senate. And that was interesting because I feel like the narrative for a while, you know, re- more recently has been that the union brass votes Democrat and the union members all vote Republican. I mean, you know, Hillary Clinton, if I remember correctly, in the exit polls, won union households, but she she did not win it by nearly as much as Obama did. There was a, a big uh, mm-hmm. shift there. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, what was interesting was sort of you, know, you talk to a lot of union members, um, or at least when I talked to a lot of union members, and certainly not didn't talk to everyone, but it was interesting how these union leaders were able to bridge <laughs> the gap and how so many union members had said, you know, Yes, I started getting interested in this candidate because of my union brass. But when I looked under the, you know, looked under the hood, I found a candidate that I, you know, was supportive of. And and I think that that's a really important shift here for you know Democrats to kind of study and try and see how they can mobilize um, relationships with union members and union brass across the country. Okay, so um, how much of a factor? Was it that Connor Lamb said he would not vote for Nancy Pelosi uh, for another term as speaker? I think everyone. I think everyone would think that it was super, super helpful. I mean, this the most potent Republican. So is she attack. still a? I mean, in every district, is she like, you know, the the Republicans? number one selling point, She's, most effective selling point? Yes. I mean, Republicans believe and have had success this cycle with just sort of bludgeoning candidates with Pelosi because they're not necessarily, when you say Pelosi in an ad, you're not saying Pelosi, the, you know, congresswoman from, you know, it's, she's over the years gone to represent so much more as sort of the card carrying Democratic Party, but also sort of you can make the the liberal left, the Hollywood left kind of arguments that that kind of all comes with. So I think you Republicans... And you, and you think it still works? It still works, certainly, electorally. I mean, we've seen it work electorally. Um, the question is, you know, A, you know, in this race, 
will candidates, well, looking at this race, will candidates start taking a Connor Lamb approach to try to inoculate themselves by immediately distancing themselves? I mean, Connor Lamb ran an ad where he looked in the camera and said, I don't support Nancy Pelosi. So it kind of undercut a lot of the messaging after that because people say, oh, no, I saw him say he doesn't support Nancy Pelosi. But, you know, that said, wonder how many districts, you know, something so, you know, something like that is repeatable in. Um, it has to be the right candidate, certainly has to be believable, but it also has to be the message the candidate wants to send. Because frankly, the anti-Pelosi message from a Democrat doesn't always work depending on your district. So it's going to be this interesting calculation over the next couple of months to see which candidates try to walk this more lamb approach of repudiating Pelosi, but also, you know, others that may decide that's not in their best interest for a whole host of reasons. Yeah. Um, It's such a it's, to me, it's such a curious question. Uh, I find it hard to believe that at a time when Republicans now have held control of the House and the Senate and the White House, everything, they control everything, that a telling message would be who the minority leader of the House is. It's who, just the symbol. like has no, no power at all. <laughs> it's been the symbol, though, I mean, the same way that you're still seeing Obama and Clinton pop up in campaign ads now. Like, you know, talk Wait, about Trump, people that... I mean, Trump still thinks he's running against Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. And right. that's the thing. The campaign talk, is still going on. Talk about people who, frankly, you know, do not have any institutional power anymore and will, prank, frankly, never have institutional power again. You know, and these arguments aren't, you know, when you're looking at Cl- Obama and Clinton, that they're behind the scenes kingmakers. It's, it's, it's using them as a sort of as an exemplar for the Democratic Party. Yeah. Uh, so um, I saw this morning, uh, I've seen several articles like this. The Washington Post has a big article about uh, the fact that um, Democrats are now looking at taking the Pennsylvania 18 model and applying it to many, many districts around the country. Uh, is that what you see going on? And and is that real? I mean, it's certainly real. I think, you know, you have more than 100 <laughs> districts that had a closer margin in the presidential, in 2016 presidential year um, than this. Um, that are now. Su- that are now held by Republicans. Held by Republicans. So, right. you know, anything from a Trump plus, you know, one to a Trump plus 20 all falls in yeah, that. Yeah. Camp. So I think there's certainly a lot of districts. Big range, of yeah. course. Yeah. And that's the thing is it's a huge range. So there's a lot. There are a lot of districts where this type of, you know, get a moderate candidate, maybe a veteran who has a compelling life story, but not a voting record, um, who'd be willing to, you know, buck the party on some issues like guns and Pelosi, but still stand by on the larger points. That could be super interesting and very compelling in certain districts. But the problem is, and well, not really a problem, but the reality is that all of these districts have their own interesting quirks. And I think, you know, one of the lessons you can learn from Lamb is that, you know, you want to make sure that you're running a district, a race for that district, not necessarily a cookie cutter. So the oh, yeah. Lamb strategy right. might work in places where it can be, you know, where all of those similar um, things exist. But, you know, you're probably not going to see the Lamb strategy in every single Republican held district. Right. I mean, you come back to where you started, I think that the, the- the the most critical of all the factors is uh, a good candidate and a candidate candidates matter and a candidate who fits that district. Uh, Congresswoman Sherry Bustos from Illinois, uh, a frequent guest, good friend of ours, who represents a red Trump district from southern Illinois, uh, is now uh, one of those people in charge, anyhow, of recruiting candidates for districts like hers. 
to run and try to flip districts. And, you know, she's quoted in the Post this morning as saying, we have uh, Connor Lambs throughout the heartland <laughs> who are running. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, in these districts where you haven't had a candidate in a while, you need to – Democrats are probably looking for a strong candidate. And I think that that's sort of the candidate quality is important, not just for messaging or not just for sort of, you know – relationship building and that kind of thing, but also for, for messaging's purpose. I mean, in Lamb, you had a candidate that could raise $3 million in a short amount of time so he could control his own message. On, mm-hmm. on the opposite side, Republicans had a candidate who, right. um, in Saccone, who only raised about, I think, a little under a million, was vastly <laughs> outraised and had to cede much of that messaging to the outside group. So you, when you don't have control of your own message, it's it's difficult to, to win. So we've been talking about strategy on the left. Meanwhile, we know that the uh, kingmaker on the right, who's going to totally turn the Republican Party upside down, is Steve Bannon. Uh, At least that's how he set out. How's that going? I mean, it was really this week you saw kind of the death of the great, the greater sort of, you know, insurgent right vision. At one point, you know... Think about this. A the couple death ago. of the Steve Bannon insurgency. How long did that last? Well, I mean, certainly yeah, right. it's uh, reflected in the White House. Parts of it is doing just fine. Let me be clear. Yeah. There's a lot of that. that a lot of his Roy um, Moore, imprint. Roy Moore didn't work out so well. And, <laughs> uh, and then he had this guy running against Dean Heller in Nevada. Yeah. So this week you saw kind of the last two of these primary challengers fall. You, if you remember a couple months ago, the vision um, in, a, in a different millennia, almost it seems like, yeah. the vision was to have... Um, a group of senators um, or a group of candidates that are all challenging incumbent senators. Right. Slowly but surely, we've seen a lot of these not materialize or, or flame out in some respects. And we saw this week, too, first you had Chris McDaniel, um, a state senator in Mississippi. He decided to not no longer run against Wicker, and he's now going to run in an open seat. So, you know, that might present problems for the Republican Party in other ways. But it's not going to be in a chance of primarying their guy. Against an, uh, an incumbent yeah. senator. Right. And then you had this week with Dean Heller, thanks to um, some you know maneuvering by the Trump campaign, organ- or Trump political organization, they were able to convince the sort of you know further right candidate um, in that primary to drop out and run for the House instead, you know, thereby clearing the path for Dean Heller in what's expected to be a very difficult Senate race. So now you have – a situation where it looked like almost every prior uh, candidate, um, or sorry, Republican incumbent senator was going to be challenged, and now it looks like just about none of them will be challenged in a primary. Right. So Steve Bannon as a political force is dead. It's an interesting question because I think you know, polit- personally, you know, the White House disavowing him in that you know burn notice of a statement kind of means that he can't really do too much on the, on the front lines right now. And you're seeing not too much thirst for that type of, you know, insurgency to that respect. But, I mean, think about, you know, he left his mark on the White House. There are still many staffers in the White House who are sort of ideologically and, you know, simpatico with him. I mean, you have Stephen Miller um, was someone who he thought he thinks very highly of. So you definitely still have a lot of that imprint in the White House and you know, in that you, it'll be interesting to see how that is still felt. But I think him personally, you know, is in a far different spot now than we were expecting him to be in. Wall Street Journal just did a, uh, a survey of um, what Americans think about who should control Congress, uh, showing the fifty percent said Democrats, forty percent said Republicans. Wall Street Journal polled ten um, percent margin. Do you think it's that? That one-sided? I mean, you're seeing – it's sort of the generic ballot test too. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of similar you know, 
we it's you know within you know six and ten points. It's a it's it's a common factor. So is a blue wave coming? A blue wave could be coming, but I think the other thing is it kind of goes all back to the beginning, right? Of candidates matter. It's one thing to say I want a Democratic you know Congress, yeah. but it's different to say I want my Republican congressman who I've worked with and who I like gone, or that I'm going to go out and vote for that particular Democrat for my district. Exactly. Right. right. Um, so. Um, don't pop the champagne yet. <laughs> so that's your message, I guess, right? It is. the method. Keep the champagne on ice still in the Javits Center. Give it you know, a little longer. <laughs> the Hill. Uh, Thehill.com is where you can follow Ben Kemazar. And you see my column in The Hill tomorrow uh, as well. Uh, ben, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure. What's happening? Talk about congressional races in California. We're going to look at a very key one coming next with Michael Eggman right here on The this Bill Press Show. is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening. Listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast, and now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do: just search for the Bill Press Show, then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go, and you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing: if you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yep, they're calling him Donald Trump untamed. Yeah, what I want to know. You mean he was tamed for the first year of his presidency? Holy mackerel. Hello, everybody. What do you say? It is a Monday. Monday, March 19. So good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. We are the Bill Press Show, and we're coming to you live coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., joining you to uh, bring you up to date on all the news of the day. Not only that, give you a chance to uh, sound off about it. Uh, and tell us what you think about it um, with uh, what's happening at the White House. Donald Trump firing or having uh, Jeff Sessions fire uh, the uh, deputy director of the FBI. Donald Trump attacking Robert Mueller by name for the first time. And Donald Trump's attorney insisting that Robert Mueller shut down his investigation, which they now say they're blaming it all on James Comey. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, elected basically for life, another six-year term. Uh, do you think that might give Donald Trump some ideas? <laughs> yeah. He sees Putin elected for six more years and President Xi of China getting a lifetime appointment from the Central Committee in China. I think Donald Trump thinks, hmm, how can I engineer something like that? We'll bring you up to date on all the news of the day. And this half hour particularly, we're going to take a look at a very key congressional race uh, in California. It's California's 10th congressional district. Michael Eggman's a great Democrat, uh, candidate in the 10th Congressional District, who's in town and joins us in studio today. Michael, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. We Happy want to find Monday. out what's going on on the ground and what the issues are and uh, how California uh, is looking, uh, our home state, 
on on many fronts. So it's good to have you here. Well, good to be here with the we'll jump right, jump right into it. And again, your comments always welcome on Twitter at BP Show. But first. This Headlines is the full Peter court here. press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news. A scary story that we talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago that has not been resolved yet in Austin, Texas. Another oh, yeah. bomb yeah. went off over the weekend. This was late last night. Austin Police Chief Brian Manley gave some details saying that this was a bomb that could have possibly been detonated by a trip wire. It was a bomb on the side of the road. It was not on a front porch, which is how the other bombs had been set off. Two males were riding or pushing their bikes on the street, uh, and they hit the tripwire and set the bomb off. They have been injured. They are being trig- uh, they are being treated right now. Uh, so uh, that is that is the latest. They have shut down school for that area. If you are taking any uh, school buses or anything like that, you don't have to go. And they say that all tardiness or absences will be excused where they are having school. So it's really scary there in Austin, Texas. so scary, yeah. By the way, we talk often about pay inequality, and one uh, one particular group that's having a real problem with this is the BBC. Uh, well, uh, here is another story about the BBC not doing a very good job. Of course, Wimbledon is a big, big deal, so they brought in a couple of people to talk about the Wimbledon tournament last year, Martina Navratilova and John McEnroe, two big <laughs> names yeah. in the history of tennis, right? Well, here's the thing. Martina Navratilova was paid... Ten times less for her appearances than what John McEnroe was paid. That is pretty bad. Now, this all comes around the fact that the BBC has a problem. They had some uh, an, a, a female executive who said she was getting paid so little that she left. So they're actually looking into it. This was part oh, of a documentary yeah. series called Britain's Equal Pay Scandal. And she says that in July 2017, <laughs> she discovered that McEnroe was making a lot more than she was. He was making 150000 to 199000 pounds while she was mm-hmm. making 15000 pounds. Wow. How do they get away with that today, these days? You know, I mean, she's... It's a good question, and I mean, look, this 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 story is not unique. You see this across no. a lot of different media companies and a lot of different workplaces. So, the fact that one of the biggest names in tennis gets that overlooked is yeah, terrible. I bet if you looked at cable television today, <clears throat> you would find um, wide gaps in what men and women are making this anchor. This is the Bill Press Show. Yeah, it was a tough race. It was very close. They were up counting the absentee ballots almost all night long. But uh, it looks like uh, Vladimir Putin has um, managed to eke out a uh, a narrow victory there. (laughs) Gosh, can you believe it? Yeah, landslide Putty, they're calling him this morning, uh, reelected for uh, six years. And, you know, that's not the last time he's going to run. You know that. What do you say, everybody? Great to see you today on a Monday It's Monday, March 19. This is the Bill Press Show, and we are coming to you live, as always, from our studio on Capitol Hill, right here in the heart of the action uh, in Washington, D.C., and there is a lot going on. Uh, The White House staff finally yesterday did us all a favor. They sent Donald Trump packing off to the golf course. I I hear he didn't want to go. 
He didn't want to play golf. He didn't think it was warm enough. And they just said, get out of here. We have to. We've had enough tweets for the weekend. Uh, but before he left for the golf course, uh, he was busy on Twitter, firing off tweet after tweet against Robert Mueller, against James Comey, against the entire uh, FBI. It is nonstop with him. We've got so much to talk about uh, for this half hour, for this next hour, including uh, taking a look at a key congressional race uh, in California. So it's good to have you with us. Look forward to hearing from you and your comments on Twitter at BP Show. And we welcome, um, we've been talking a lot about Democratic efforts and the importance of taking back the House uh, in uh, 2018. Well, here's a man who's uh, determined to do that one district at a time, starting with his district, the 10th Congressional District in the Central Valley of California, candidate Michael Eggman. Michael, good to see you. Good to see you, Bill. Thanks for uh, having me. We have worked together on a previous campaign, uh, and um, it's it's great to see that you're there and you're still at it. Uh, tell us, first of all, I know, not everybody knows, the 10th District. Where is it? What's it all about? Uh, it's in the Central Valley of California, if you know where Modesto is. Um, that's uh, the, the so the, sort of the, the north central valley, right? North, yeah, north central Inland valley from San Francisco. Yeah, just yeah. just over the Altamont Pass mm-hmm. uh, from the Bay Area. Mainly still like uh, the entire central valley agricultural district. Ag is our key economy there, and a bedroom community too, I guess. Huh? Yeah, for Maybe. the uh, for the Silicon Valley, it's uh, we we house the employees of the Silicon Valley. We like to say because it's too expensive to buy in the <laughs> Silicon Valley, so. I was just so, going to say, yeah. yeah so we'll house so, them because they can't afford to. Right. So every morning at five a.m., you see a sea of taillights heading west, and then every night uh, coming back, you see a, a sea of headlights coming back to the district. Right. Uh, in that district, um, uh, if people, if you were in the district today, uh, and you went around to uh, coffee shops or whatever, would people be talking about Donald Trump and James Comey? Would they be talking about Vladimir Putin? Uh, would they be talking about the fact that the government's going to run out of of money this Friday? Or would they be talking about issues that are important to that district? And if so, what, 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 you know, what do you find there? Well, you'd be uh, talking about a mixture. I mean, uh, people think Central Valley is just all ag, but we're really plugged in because we are so close to the Bay Area. Um, but people are talking about, you know, Russia. People are talking about Trump. Um, people are talking about how the uh, Republican Party is not being uh, really recognized. I mean, we're talking about generational Republicans that uh, live in the district. And um, I'm a beekeeper, so I work in ag. I work with uh, a lot of our Republican friends. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they invite me in for dinner. And uh, around the dinner table, they're just uh, telling me they're washing their hands to their party. It's no, they don't no longer recognize it. And they recognize that uh, Jeff Denham, my opponent, um, is in real trouble this this cycle because instead of standing with uh, the hardworking folks of the Central Valley and we're hard workers there, um, uh, Jeff Denham is not standing with them. He's standing with Trump. Five thirty eight dot com says he's voted with Trump ninety eight point five percent of the time. So he's that's interesting. He's the incumbent Republican, Jeff Denham, um, and you came close to winning that seat the last time. As I recall, right? yeah, it was the uh, he won re-election by the third narrowest margin in the country. Really, yeah, yeah right. So. But so he has made a decision, and 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 you know, this is a decision a lot of Republicans are some some I, could, I guess are wrestling with, right? Uh, but he's made a decision to stand with Donald Trump, no, no distance, right? No in, daylight in lockstep. Uh, I mean, the Modesto B, the biggest uh, paper right. in the district. 
uh, is quoted as saying he's a loyal uh, Trump foot soldier in the valley. So that's how much he's standing with Trump. And not only is he voting with Trump, you know, he's he's not said a, a peep at anything that's coming out of the uh, out of the White House, whether it be, um, you know, on Russia, whether it be the White House chief of staff. Uh, we have a big uh, DACA population in the district. Mm-hmm. And when the White House chief of staff referred to them as too lazy to get off their asses uh, to sign up for DACA, not one peep from Jeff Denham. Right. Who's supposed to be a leader on the issue of immigration reform. What um, and in terms of um, did, did the district vote for Trump? I guess no. The, actually, the district voted for for Clinton. Really? Yeah. Yeah. For just under three three percentage points, which which says a lot. Too, yeah. Right? Exactly. In terms of, so you think this is a um, what? What's the phrase? A flippable district. It's a flippable. If you think the Democratic wave is bigger than three percent, then this district is uh, in play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just have to make sure we put, you know, fight our best fight. Uh, have you, uh, is, is this, I should know this, but the primary, are you the candidate yet, or is there a Democratic primary? Um, uh, like a like a lot of districts around the country, it's a crowded Democratic field. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a late entrance. Uh, I didn't uh, plan on running this cycle. Um, as you know, running for office just yeah. doesn't involve the candidate, but involves your family too, so I wanted to give my well, my wife and I have uh, two uh, beautiful daughters, both in college right now. I want to mm-hmm. uh, kind of give them a break of the campaign. But look, through this past year, we've all watched in horror uh, as the Trump agenda has just seemed to be steamrolling our country. But we've also watched, uh, you know, in admiration with uh, the resistance grow, not just around the country and not just around California, but actually in the Central Valley. Well, I've been on your uh, email list for uh, for for this cycle at any rate, so I hear from you often. I know you're really running an aggressive campaign. I can see that I hear from you like every day. Um, what? Uh, so when you go out to tell people, what is your message? I mean, they talk about Democrats need a message. I mean, what is your message uh, to people? Why? Why? Why you? Right? Why Democrat? Why? Why, why change? And then why you? Well, there's a thing called can, candidate district fit. And look, I'm a Latino, uh, uh, you know, farmer in a majority minority ag district. So that's a that's a perfect fit. And people know that the beekeeper is fighting for them. And now they know that Donald uh, Trump and uh, Jeff Denham are in lockstep. That Denham doesn't represent the values of the districts or the interests of the district. He just represents, you know, Donald Trump, the one percent, and the big corporations. That's who he's focused on. Uh, And on immigration, um, your position on um, either either comprehensive immigration reform or DACA? Look, my mom's family is from immigrated to California from Zacatecas, Mexico. So this is a uh, you know, I know the importance of this issue. Um, I believe in comprehensive immigration reform. It strengthens families. It strengthens our, our our labor force. And look, in ag, that's an important labor force. Uh, and it strengthens our economy. The CBO says it would say take um, seven hundred billion dollars off of our deficit by uh, twenty thirty three if we could just pass comprehensive immigration reform. Denham, you know, claims to be a leader on the issue, but heck, he's been in office since that Tea Party wave of two thousand ten. You know, what's he done? Talk how, is cheap. How important is the immigrant community to uh, California agriculture or to agriculture in general? Oh, it's, it's tremendously tremendously important. 
I mean, look, we, you know, we feed the, uh, the, the country, if not the world. Uh, the, you know, we're the Garden of Eden. And when it comes to time to harvest, we need uh, an available workforce. And right now, because of uh, the, the faltering policy on immigration reform, that workforce just isn't there. Year after year, that workforce dwindles because of the immigration uh, issues that we have. Are there still as many people pouring across the border as uh, once once was in California? I mean, back in the days when I was there, when I was state chair, when Pete Wilson was governor, you know, there was a real problem of a flow of. Uh, no, not these days. I mean, border enforcement is is tougher than ever. Uh, and so you know who's really taking advantage of the folks coming across the border right now. It's not the folks on this this side of the border. It's just, it's the it's the the people that bring these uh, mm. these folks on over. It's incredibly expensive now. It's incredibly dangerous, um, and that's why people, you know, once they get here, they stay because it's too difficult to go back. Often they don't want you know they don't want to stay here. They they just want to come earn a living and and go back to their families. But uh, that's not being done right now. Uh, is a wall the answer? A- absolutely not. Uh, uh, a medieval solution to a modern problem. <laughs> that's a good way of summing it up, yeah. I mean, uh, especially from what we saw last week with these prototypes of the wall. But, you know, every time Donald Trump talks about it, he changes what the wall's going to look like. It's going to be a see-through wall now, right? So, yeah. <laughs> well, and Mexico is, uh, uh, are they going to pay for it yet? I, I don't even think Donald Trump claims that they're going to pay for they've it. They've given up on that. They, <laughs> they've just completely walked away from that. They know they're not going to make that happen. They really have. Really. Right. Um, if you are a member of Congress, one of the um, uh, one of the issues that you're going to one of probably the first issues you're going to be asked to uh, support or vote for would be um, the issue on the issue of gun safety. Okay, you represent a a Central Valley district from California. Would you support a ban on assault weapons? Uh, I would support a ban on assault weapons. Um, but it, look, I believe in the Second Amendment. You just noticed or mentioned that I uh, am from an ag district. So, you know, there, there are, uh, you know, guns out in that district. I grew up on a farm and there's guns on the farm I grew up in. And my dad taught me how to use it um, or any gun, just mm-hmm. like a, a tool of the farm. Uh so I think the Second Amendment is important. But look, we have to, he, he taught me to be smart about how to use a gun. You know, you have to use your smarts, son. That's what he would say. And being smart is, look, let's not make guns available to the mentally ill. Or let's have background checks. Every gun that I've ever bought, in, I, I had to get a background check. We need that universal across the country. We want to make sure that there's felons don't have access to guns. Uh, we want to make sure that people with temporary restraining orders or domestic abusers don't have a gun or mentally ill or people on a no-fly list. Jeff Denham thinks all those people should have access to guns. And let me just say about this Parkland um, tragedy, mm-hmm. not one word, not one thoughts and prayers, not one peep from Facebook, from Twitter, from anything from Congressman Denham uh, after 17 innocent people, mostly children, lost their lives. Not one peep. I guess the, his A rating from the NRA doesn't allow it. Is the NRA a powerful force in the district? Are they players in the district in a congressional seat like this? Uh, you know, unfortunately, I think they're players everywhere. Um, and that's, you know, something that we need to overcome as a country. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I can't wait to see the energy happening 
that's going to happen on uh, on the 24th for the March for Our Lives. Oh yeah, it's going to be big, and um, and I'll be yeah. out there. I'll yeah, out the there irony watching. is, I'm sure I, you will be wherever you are. Yeah, but here uh, in Washington D.C., it's going to yeah, be yeah. The the, the 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 fantastic member of Congress, Elizabeth Esty, um, you know the the rep from Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talked to her years ago about this issue, and she's like, "We're going to get you know gun reform um, through the mothers, you know the the how we how we did it with drunk driving, uh, with the mad mothers. Well, the mad mothers are going to you know." get this gun reform. Well, ironically, now it's not coming from the mothers. It's coming from the children themselves. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, in, I'm encouraged that we're really going to move uh, the ball forward on this important issue. Yeah, they are a powerful force like we haven't seen in, in, in a long time. Um, I'm sure you followed what happened in Pennsylvania's 18th Congressional District last week. We just talked about it with Ben Kamazar from The Hill. Um, one of the ways that uh, Connor Lamb... Um, made news was uh, he said that if he were elected, he would not vote for Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the of the House. Would you? Look, what I'm 100% focused on right now is who's voting for Michael Eggman and winning the 10th Congressional District uh, to give the people of the of the district the representation that they so desperately need and deserve. So that's my 100% focus. Um, I don't. I don't know about the inside baseball uh, of politics about who, uh, who to vote for later. That's not my focus right now. So you're not. Uh, if I, uh, uh, you're not committed to vote for her or against her at this point. Right. It's just not my focus right now. I'm worried about you know uh, how to communicate with the voters of the district to, to make sure that uh, Jeff Denham does not get reelected. Do does anybody in your district uh, ask you? How are you going to vote on Nancy Pelosi? No, that's not what's on their mind. They they talk to me about water, uh, at what, as you know, in an ag district is the, of the utmost importance. They talk to me about um, immigration reform. They talk to me about infrastructure. I mean, if you drive around the rural roads uh, in not just my district, but around the state, I mean, it's, you know, uh, sometimes I hit potholes so big, it's bounced beehives off the back of my truck. Um, the uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers gives our country a D plus rating for infrastructure, which <laughs> which really uh, reflects poorly on uh, Congressman Denham since he sits on the uh, Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Curious, um, not that this is the most important factor, but um, how much money do you see? Do you have plan or figure out for running for Congress today? That it will take to win a congressional seat. What's what's a- well? We raised about two million dollars uh, last time when we were extremely competitive. You know, we came at a point and a half from the other side of the aisle to to knock right. in this entrenching coming. So off. that's roughly the. So that's that's roughly what I think it's going to take uh, to be uh, you know competitive. But look, I don't. Uh, I'm a middle class guy running a middle ca- class campaign. You know, I don't take corporate PAC money. Um, you know, who funds my campaign are just everyday working folks pitching in, you know, what they can, when they can. And that's the same system we used last time. I mean, we raised, you know, about about, about two million dollars. Right. Uh, and the website, by the way, it doesn't matter where you live uh, in the country. It's important to support good Democratic candidates wherever they are. And uh, uh, California could could and I think will uh, take the lead in uh, taking the House back for Democrats in 2018. 
No better place to start than in the 10th Congressional District at Michael Eggman. It's two G's, egg, like egg, Eggman dot, MichaelEggman.com. I mean, with that name, you should be raising chickens, not bees, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> if, 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 if everything were normal. But All right, I want to ask you about a couple of things for California. Sure. Who's going to be the next governor of California? Um, What's your gut tell you? Uh, my my are gut. Are you supporting anybody? Uh, well, well, I'm I'm a I'm a delegate, and uh, I did I did support um, Gavin Newsom. He's a Northern California guy. Supported my last campaign, uh, and I'm supporting him. Former mayor of San Francisco, uh, now the, the lieutenant, lieutenant governor, governor of California. Yeah, yeah. Um, but a lot of a lot of energy behind his campaign. Um, but interesting about you know California and our politics. You know, with our top two system. Uh, uh, the jungle primary, as they call it, I think it's going to really, um, you know, help uh, in districts like mine um, uh, with with regard to the Republican turnout versus the Democratic turnout, because I think it's going to be with our top two system. I think it's going to be two Democrats uh, at the top of the ticket in the general for um, governor. I think it's going to be two Democrats for Senate. Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General, on down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if uh, the our good friends on the other side of the aisle are just so demoralized by, you know, the, I don't know if you've heard this term here, but they're calling it Trump fatigue. That's, you know, the Republicans that are just, just so tired about hearing uh, about Trump. So if we can combine Trump fatigue with, you know, having all the big ticket uh, um, items with filled with Democrats, if just 5% of that the Republican base, that's... So um, having so reliable uh, right. stays home. We win this thing. So having two Democrats at the top of the the top of the ticket for any of these right. for most of these races right. certainly probably prob- I agree with you. Probably all of them would encourage Republicans to stay home and yeah. Democrats to come out. I mean, like, oh, I can't yeah. vote for governor. I can't vote for Senate. Right. If it's two Democrats uh, on the ticket for governor, it's uh, Gavin Newsom and Antonio Villaraigosa or John Chung. The one of the two. Yeah, they're both running strong campaigns. Uh, uh, I, Via Ragosa, uh, you, you know, so people ask me my opinion. Um, you know, they say, well, you know, what, the, the people I chat with in Southern California, they ask me about Newsom and the people in that I, and, and vice versa. Yeah. Uh, but then I always throw in, well, what do you think about John Chung? And everyone knows about John Chung because, of course, he was the uh, the treasurer Control- of the state and the con- controller. Controller, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, on the Senate side, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein running for re-election, um, and uh, she's been there since 1992, I believe. Uh, some people thought she might step down. She surprised everybody. She's running for another six-year term. Um, and um, Kevin DeLeon, the head of the state Senate, is going to is challenging her in in the primary. So the the Senate race, you think, will end up with the two of them on the. At the top of the ticket? Yeah, I believe it will. Just like we did last year with um, uh, Kamala Harris and Sanchez. Right. Or last cycle, I should say. Uh, who who comes out of that the winner? Uh, that that one's a and, and have a you And have you endorsed? No, I haven't endorsed anyone. I'm still wrestling with, uh, uh, you know, I like Kevin's progressive policies, uh, but of course, uh, I love uh, Senator Feinstein's steady leadership over the years. Um, and, you know, uh, I, I'd hate for us to have two junior senators uh, in the Senate. Um, so that's uh, it's, I'm still calculating who would be the best representation for our state. I want to ask you about – I know nothing about this except I've just read little articles here and there or heard things about um, the, 
the 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 state of the bee kingdom these days, right, is not in great shape. Is that correct? Oh. Well, I mean, bees as a species are threatened worldwide. I, I have to be careful not on? to get in the weeds here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> on okay. This one because, Please, no. Yeah, because but we'll we'll just really... a couple of minutes. But I mean, what's what are the problems and what's going on? Well, uh, I like to tell folks. So I'm a third generation beekeeper. Um, that's what I do. It's how I. So that means you raise honey, make honey. Is that with these bees? Is that well? The the business model used to be you would get half of your income from from honey production and sale, mm-hmm. and the other half from uh, pollination. A lot of folks just think of bees. They think, oh yeah, honey. But uh, people don't oh. realize that bees are directly or indirectly responsible for every one uh, out of every three bi- food uh, bites of food we eat. Hmm are related to a bee. So the big part of my business is pollination, right? Whether it be almonds, uh, cherries, apples, blueberries, um, you know, or, and we also pollinate seed. So, uh, you know, all the hay that the cows eat, guess who pollinates that alfalfa seed are the bees. So when I do talks to, uh, you know, school kids, I, I, you know, I ask them who, you know, what's the, who likes I'll, go, I'll name fruits, but then I'll also include cheeseburgers and ice cream and let them, you know, let them draw the connection that bees are involved, you know, in the whole food picture. Um, so I like to tell folks with regard to your question about what's going on with the bees, that um, bees are the canary in the coal mine, if you will, for the health of our environment. Well, as a country, we've lost over over half of our domestic bee colonies in the last 25 years. Really? Over half. Over half of the bee population? Yes. To disease? To Well, um, there, they, there's, a no, there's a term for it, colony collapse disorder, uh, which they say is a combination of different factors, whether it be uh, you know, pesticide uh, issues, mite issues, um, bacterial or viral issues. Um, but the, the big issue that I attribute most of it to is the issue of nutrition. Um, if bees are a livestock, we're on the California Livestock Report, we're right under swine. Um, and just like any other livestock, if you don't feed them properly, they're going to be susceptible to all uh, you know, those health issues. So with this climate crisis that we're in, where it's warm when it should be cool, cool when it should be uh, warm, wet when it should be dry, et cetera, that directly affects the flora, which directly affects the um, bees' nutrition. And in this historic drought in California that we've had over the past five, six years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I'm a third generation, so I have these wonderful bee yards up in the Sierras or over on the coastal range, but I can't take them there. They're literally moonscapes or fire hazards right now. You know, I could take them there, but the, the bees would starve to death. So now we have to be around uh, irrigated crops. Well, when you're around irrigated crops, now you're around pesticides. And not just the old-fashioned pesticides. Now you have these new, uh, you know, chemically engineered uh, neonics or genetically modified so, crops. So I guess something up. This is a real today impact of climate change. It's right? a it's of a global warming that we're already experiencing. Yeah, the, and see, and, and and this is the thing. It hurts agricultural communities first and hardest. It kills crops. It kills livestock. It's killing my livestock. And if the reason, heck, for almond pollination, you used to be able to, uh, the almond growers need to, to get a commercial crop, they need to pollinate, pollinate them with bees. And they used to be able to rent those beehives for, you know, 120 bucks a hive. Now it's in excess of $200 because it's a supply and demand issue. 
Um, so it's an economic uh, issue as well, this, this climate crisis we're in. Right. No. So, uh, ab- absolutely, and uh, you know, I think uh, more and more people recognize that. And sadly, we have well, still have except a- for Congressman Denham, you know, oh, uh, uh, President Trump, and the you know the uh, Secretary of the EPA Pruitt. They don't believe in climate change. No. They want to put their head in the sand. They're all climate change. Uh, they're all they're all deniers. And and look, we don't have to choose between uh, you know doing something about climate change and and uh, helping our economy. Uh, well, you know, uh, we we need to recognize the problem and look at it as an opportunity and start providing good green jobs out there. Uh, that's going to both help our economy and save our environment. Uh, uh, amen. If we don't take climate change seriously, we're going to do further, even further destroy the economy. Michael Eggman, he's our candidate, Democratic candidate in the 10th Congressional District in California. Very, very important district. And again, no matter where you live in the country, this is the kind of candidate we should be supporting, kind of race that we can win against a 98% Trumper. He's 100% Trumper. <laughs> uh, Michael Eggman is our guy in the 10th. It's michaelegman.com, right? Yep, michaelegman.com. And on facebook.com, you want to, what is that? Yeah, well, facebook.com uh, Eggman slash for Eggman for Congress. All right, check in, find out more about Michael, help where you can. Michael, great to see you. Good luck. Okay? Great to see you, Bill. Go get him. Thank you. We'll be uh, right back and talk about what's happening on Facebook with Sarah Fisher from Axios. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, what do you say on a Monday, March 19? Hello, everybody. Good to have you with us here as we... Uh, leap from the weekend into a what is going to be and promises to be threatens to be a very very busy topsy-turvy news week yet another one well starting out with a full-scale attack on robert Mueller and the uh special counsel's investigation and uh winding up on friday with yet another showdown uh over a shutdown uh and whether or not the Congress will be able to get its act together and avoid shutting down the government uh, yet again for the third time in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, the big issues outstanding there are whether or not there'll be any funding for the wall, whether or not there will be any resolution and any protection for the dreamers, uh, and whether or not uh, Donald Trump will acknowledge that on the busiest rail line in the entire country, and one of the busiest in the world between uh, Washington, D.C. and New York City, uh, we might maybe, might just maybe, maybe um, be worth upgrading the tunnel from New Jersey into New York City since I think the existing one was built sometime during the 19th century. Uh, those issues yet to be resolved. Uh, we'll uh, take you through all the news of the day we can in the next 20 minutes or so. We'll be joined shortly by Sarah Fisher from uh, Ma- Axios, the media reporter uh, from Axios, to uh, to talk about the latest incredible news about Facebook uh, letting data go into the hands of the Trump campaign on 50 million uh, Americans. Meanwhile, um, we always invite your comments on Twitter and love hearing from you at BP Show. Yes, indeed. Don't forget, we are on Twitter, as you just said, at BP Show. We did put up a poll earlier about will the GOP stand up to Trump. 
If he tries to fire Mueller, that poll will be live for the rest of the day. So if you're listening on a podcast, you can still go there and vote cool, on it. But cool. we got a couple of different responses. Um, I can't read this guy's name because it would not uh, uh, comply with FCC rules. But uh, will the Republicans stand up to Trump? Uh, he says, most are spineless and forget when the next scandal hits, which is daily, which seems about right. They'll just sort of move on to the next thing. Uh, you were asking uh, Eggman about whether or not he would support Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we got a comment saying, so is Nancy Pelosi the new female punching bag for the right now that Hillary's gone? Sure looks that way. Yeah, I would say not the new one. They've been using yeah, her, they've been for, using a her for a little while, I, too. I honestly think it's not as effective as it once may have been, but they're true. That, that that won't stop them. Yeah. Uh, on the Donald Trump lies, a few more comments about that. Uh, one person saying, I've been saying this since 2016. When the orange guy's mouth is moving, he is lying. His lies have gotten bolder and bigger. And uh, one other commenter saying, uh, if anyone else acted the way that Trump does, we would just assume they were drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Find us, leave us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. I guess it's a good thing he doesn't drink, right? You know, I I actually had this conversation not that long ago because someone said, is he just drinking? And I said, he says he's not a drinker. I don't think he did. I mean, I believe that. I believe believe that. But can you imagine if he drank? Well, on the other hand, if you have 12 Diet Cokes... Uh, an hour. I mean, yeah. <laughs> they add up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might maybe, as well just drink the beer. <laughs> maybe twelve a day. I don't yeah, know what it is, right? Uh, and also, let me uh, seize the opportunity uh, to remind you: this is the week. This is Pub Week, Publication Week uh, for the new book we've been telling you about from the left. My memoir from the left: Life in the Crossfire. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun, uh, if I must say so myself. Um, and it goes all the way back from, yeah, growing up in Delaware, uh, studying for the priesthood for a while, making my way to California, getting involved in politics, working with Jerry Brown, uh, starting my media career in Los Angeles, uh, radio and television, becoming chair of the California Democratic Party, and then coming back here to Washington, D.C. with a crossfire on CNN, the spin room with Tucker Carlson on CNN, uh, Pat Buchanan and I, our show, Buchanan and Press on MSNBC, uh, our own show here, the Bill Press Show, and of course, leading up to the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, all wrapped up here. And you can get your copy this week at your local bookstore, Amazon.com, or uh, the best deal at a 40% discount uh, from our website, BillPressShow.com. Just follow the link right on the front page. Easy to order, and uh, you can get your signed uh, copy. Uh, it has been. It was a flurry of mad tweets, of course, over the weekend with Donald Trump uh, launching an all-out, full-scale war on Robert Mueller by name for the first time. Donald Trump attacking Robert Mueller by name, uh, but it was an attack not just on Mueller himself, on the special counsel's investigation. And on the entire uh, FBI, it was sort of a threefold attack. Uh, it started with uh, Donald Trump uh, giving the order to Jeff Sessions, who readily, readily complied uh, to fire the deputy director of the FBI, Andy McCabe. Why fire him on Saturday? Because if Andy McCabe had lasted through the weekend, uh, his federal pension, for which he has, I guess, 19 years and 363 days 
would have kicked in. He was two days short of his full pension. Uh, and Jeff Sessions, who is desperate to keep his job and to do anything he can to please Daddy, he said, yes, Daddy, I'll do it. He fired uh, Andy McCabe a Saturday evening at 10 p.m. I'm so glad you mentioned that, right? Because we talk a lot about how bad Trump is, and it's clear. Yeah. Trump is, oh, we, yeah. we know who he is, right? But now he's got these people that are trying to curry oh, yeah. favor oh, yeah. and disgusting. show off and it's, impress yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, like right. Jeff Sessions gets it, right? Like he's a, essentially a lifelong politician. So there's a courtesy that a lot of these lifers give other lifers, right? So Jeff Sessions on his own probably would not try and fire Andrew McCabe. And what would it what would but he what doesn't would have Trump. cost what would have cost them, right, to give McCabe two days. Just the decency and the dignity of finishing his yeah. twenty years, right? Yeah. Whatever. And no, they couldn't do that because they're, they're such small people. Uh, so Sessions did that. And then the, the, uh, the good thing about this, of course, is that McCabe fired back. And he said uh, all they're trying to do is to uh, discredit him uh, because he is a witness in the Robert Mueller investigation himself because of all of his dealings with Donald Trump on the firing of James Comey and on other matters. Uh, so he said they're trying to discredit him as a witness. That's what it's all about. Uh, I, he's absolutely right. Uh, but he did point out that um, it may be too late because he's already been interviewed by the special counsel and his team. Uh, and he has already given them his notes of the meetings that he had with Donald Trump, um, notes he made subsequent to meeting with the president, just like James Comey. I kept uh, the, uh, his notes as well and turned those over to uh, Robert Mueller. So Mueller's got the uh, he's got the goods if they're to the extent that Andy McCabe has anything incriminating against uh, Donald Trump. Mueller uh, already has them. So that was the first phase, knocking down uh, Andy McCabe. The second phase was Donald Trump sent his attorney, John Dowd, uh, out on Twitter uh, to demand that. I mean, just like out of the blue. And, and remember, for the last six months or so, while Donald Trump keeps bitching about the witch hunt and the partisan probe and all of that, still the White House, for the most part, its strategy has been to keep its distance from Robert Mueller, not to attack him personally, and sort of give the impression that they were letting the investigation run its course and cooperating with it. Well, again, that changed drastically, dramatically over the weekend. So the second phase of this effort was Donald Trump sending his attorney, John Dowd, out there to say, Robert Mueller, he's got to drop his investigation right now. Andy McCabe is gone. That proves it was all political. It was all started by James Comey. Got to end, like right now. John Dowd insisting that uh, he never talked to Donald Trump before he sent out that tweet, which uh, I don't believe for a moment, and none of us should believe for a moment, because uh, within an hour of John Dowd tweeting, Donald Trump himself tweeted out, naming again Mueller for, by name for the first time, and accusing him of hiring uh, nothing but Democrats to lead an investigation, again, he now alleges, which was started solely by former FBI director, Republican FBI director, 
James Comey. By the way, it, it, I wanted to read James Comey's tweet over the weekend because he tweeted on Saturday uh, after the president again brought his name up. And James Comey, uh, who was on Twitter, oh, yes. at yeah. Comey, <laughs> says, Mr. President, the American people will hear my story very soon, and they can judge for themselves who is honorable and who is not. Now, look, James uh, Comey's no hero. He's done some pretty terrible things when you look at how he handled the oh, Hillary yeah. Clinton yeah. stuff. Right. And I don't want to turn him into some icon for Democrats, right? But he's got the goods. But he's also he's a straight shooter. I mean, sure. Yeah. And on this on the investigation, he was fired, uh, wrongly fired, I believe. He should. We've talked about this so many times. I think Barack Obama should have fired James Comey for what he did to Hillary Clinton. But James Comey didn't do any wrong to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is under criminal investigation. And and Donald Trump fired him because James Comey would not drop the investigation. That is, in my judgment, obstruction of justice. That's one of the things that Robert Mueller is looking into. So you're right. He's no hero. But when it comes to Donald Trump, he's a straight shooter. Donald Trump is not. Um, but Donald uh, James Comey did not did not start this investigation, uh, and um, uh, and and it's again that um, Donald Trump just lying about the fact that that Mueller has hired nobody but Democrats. Let's start with the fact that James Comey and Robert Mueller are both Republicans, and they work for the Donald Trump Republican Department of Justice. And by the way, somebody pointed out that. Uh, McCabe has voted for Republican president in every single election except for this past one. I think he may be a Republican, too. I want to double check that. His wife ran as a Democrat, but I think he may be a Republican. I think so. Yeah, I absolutely think so. Right. Uh, I want to read that tweet you just mentioned, the uh, the tweet about the, the Democrats. The Donald Democrats, Trump tweeted right. yesterday yeah. morning, uh, why does the Mueller team have 13 hardened Democrats, some big crooked Hillary supporters, and zero Republicans? It's just not true. I mean, it's just not true. All right. Uh, He goes, and they just added another dem. Does anyone think this is fair? And yet there is, all capital letters, no collusion. Hmm. Right. Keep coming back to that. No collusion. It is true that Robert Mueller has not concluded that there was collusion yet. He has not shown any evidence of collusion yet. But the investigation is far from over. As we can see, in many ways, it is just gearing up. Uh, reaction. Reaction to the president's comments came uh, pretty quickly yesterday. Uh, and from some leading Republicans, uh, Trey Gowdy, head of the uh, House Oversight Committee, from who's retiring from South Carolina, uh, did say, hey, look, Mr. President and your attorney, just let this thing go. And if you're innocent, you got nothing to worry about. So to suggest that Mueller should shut down and that all he is looking at is collusion, if you have an innocent client, Mr. Dowd, act like it. Yes. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham from South Carolina repeating something he has said before that what would happen were Donald Trump to continue in this direction, which some people believe he's heading, namely to fire Robert Mueller, Lindsey Graham. Well, as I said before, if he tried to do that, that would be the beginning of the end of his presidency because we're a rule of law nation. Well, we will see. Everybody says that would spark a a constitutional crisis. Uh, I'm not even sure firing Robert Mueller would be enough to get Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell to ever break with uh, Donald Trump. 
Uh, but as we mentioned, uh, we wanted to talk about Facebook and what's happened and what happened with Facebook and uh, Cambridge Analytica. Pretty s- shocking news about the data on 50 million Americans uh, that Cambridge Analytica was able to obtain somehow through Facebook. Sarah Fisher is a media reporter for Axios, who joins us now in studio. Hi, Sarah. Nice to see you. Good morning. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Sorry you had a little traffic problems getting here. Thanks for having me. So who is Cambridge Analytica, and how did they get this data from Facebook? Sure. So they're a data analytics firm. They work with both commercial clients and political clients. And I think the most important thing about this story is not that Cambridge access data in a way that no one else has done it in the past. I mean, there have been other campaigns from multiple parties that have used third-party apps to access data from Facebook and Facebook users. The key here is that the way that they obtained the data was not really transparent to users the way that which in which they'd be using it. So the example that's kind of going around on Twitter right now is that the Obama campaign, too, had an app, a third-party developer app that you could help uh, to garner data from Facebook. However, it was very transparent to users that that data would be used for Obama election campaign efforts. Uh, It was not very transparent to users that the Cambridge Analytica quiz, the uh, app Mm. that they were able to... Oh, I see. So they put out a quiz to all these people, right? A quiz, but it was also just through... app that they could plug into Facebook's API, which is the back-end programming um, software that Facebook uses, um, to be able to use that data to then, down the line, potentially target Trump voters. Now, Cambridge put out a statement saying that's not even what the data was used for. We never used it. Um, But there's investigations going on right now to see what was actually the case. Because Cambridge said, after Facebook had confronted them about this years ago in 2015, But they deleted the data. Well, this New York Times report that came out over the weekend says they didn't. So now investigators are looking into where did that data go? What was it being used for? And if it really was being used for the Trump campaign, despite Cambridge saying and the Trump campaign saying it wasn't, um, that could be a problem because users had very little understanding of that. How much did Facebook know about what was going on? Facebook knew that the data had been obtained through uh, its back end developer system Um, around 2014-2015, and they asked Cambridge, once it came to their attention that the data was taken, to delete it. They got a signed confirmation from Cambridge saying that they would delete it in 2015. This is where it gets a little bit hard for Facebook. There are some people that are saying, well, how come you didn't take further action? How come you didn't go to law enforcement? How come you didn't notify users? And what Facebook says is, we didn't notify users or bring it to law enforcement because it wasn't technically a breach. They didn't technically you know, breach our data. They obtained it in a way that is used in the way that our system was built, but their intentions for using it go against our policies. Did they pay for it? They didn't pay for it. No, you don't they have to pay for it. Don't have to pay for it. They just no, got it. They just got it. And data on 50 million people. That's right. And I want to be really clear about something, which is that the way that the internet has evolved with minimal regulation, not just around Facebook, but a lot of apps and a lot of internet service providers is or internet services has created a lot of loopholes for people to obtain data in ways that aren't so transparent to users. Now, in America, we never had a cultural expectation to privacy, so it's not something that users demand transparency on. But other places around the world, like Europe, it is. Okay. So you, they, not you, want me to believe that Steve Bannon has data on 50 million Americans who are potential Trump voters, and he's not going to use it in the campaign? 
Well, it's not exactly. They really <laughs> expect us to believe that? It's not exactly Steve Bannon. So it's a third party data vendor. And to be transparent and clear, uh, the data Trump vendor, campaign, though, was founded by Steve Bannon and Robert Mercer. It's yes, it's backed by them. I think the thing to be really clear about is that the Trump campaign primarily used data from a third party group called the Data Trust. This is very widely known and has been very widely reported. A bulk, the majority of the Data Trust data came from the RNC and came from other sources, um, Mm -hmm. not including Cambridge Analytica, which is what the Trump campaign is arguing. I will say Kim Hart and I, who's our tech editor, we did a piece about the Trump data campaign in February, a three part series. And we found continuously that the Trump campaign said we didn't work with Cambridge on mining data. They said they work with Cambridge on helping to place ad tags, which is sort of like the ad infrastructure to help you navigate and trace where ads go. Mm-hmm. Um, so this narrative that we didn't work with Cambridge for data has been alive and well within the Republican Party for a really long time. But again, we don't know exactly what's real and what's not, given the fact that we're learning now that the data is still out there. It still exists, even when Cambridge said they deleted it. So what's this mean for Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg? I mean, they've already had a pretty rocky road for the last year or so. I mean, I think Facebook is finding this crisis of, I guess, the way that they would frame it or they would look at it is maybe like well-intentioned naivety, which is they've created really open platforms with the intention use case of promoting and elevating democracy. So if you think about places and instances like the Arab Spring, their platforms were being used to elevate democracy. And that's not just something that they do from uh, the posting side. It's also on the advertising um, and developer side in the back end, which is where you saw this problem come to mm-hmm. fruition. Mm-hmm. I think regulators are starting to look at open platforms like Facebook, and they're saying, well, if Facebook can't responsibly manage user data of 50 million people, right, they didn't bring this to law enforcement. They signed an agreement with this company, and clearly the company didn't uphold it. Maybe it's time that we step in and we start regulating them because they clearly can't necessarily manage the you know, scale and scope of their platform themselves. Uh, I really think that Oh, sorry. Whatever action comes to fruition here, it's going to start in Europe. And that is the last thing that Facebook or Google or Twitter or anybody wants, right? That's the last thing they want is to be regulated by the government. They definitely want to be able to regulate themselves simply because they feel as though, one, it could obviously hurt their (laughs) business structure. And two, they probably uh, feel as though there is an opportunity to overregulate based off of what we don't know and how we don't understand technology. And this comes on top of the whole flap about all the ads that the Russians were able to run, uh, reaching some 24 million Americans. And Facebook says they didn't talk about naivete, right? Yes. As uh, former Senator Al Franken pointed out, they were paid for in rubles and you didn't suspect that maybe... Well, Russians were buying the ads? In Facebook's defense, because I've been on that side, I've sold political advertising, there are probably thousands and thousands of really good groups that have no bad intentions that do pay for ads and rubles. Facebook's a global company. 88% of their users are outside of the U.S. So I think that, yes, there's a lot of pieces now that Facebook knows they have to put together, which is if a company is using rubles, if they're targeting people inside the United States, if they're using political terminology to target those people, now they understand they have to be taking a closer look. But at the time, I don't think they were making all of those connections, which is, again, part of this willful ignorance or naivety, if you will. Uh, we have just touched the surface here, but there's so, a couple of other issues I have to ask you about in terms of the media world. Um, it looks like in terms of self-promotion, uh, that Donald Trump may have met his match in Stormy Daniels. 
Yes, Stormy Daniels has done a pretty excellent job of staying in the headlines, first with who she's giving the stories to and who her lawyers are talking about and talking to. I'd say the interesting thing about the Stormy Daniels conversation is that it's almost started now as a distraction to some of the bigger stuff that we have going on in a way that almost benefits the president, because the president's affairs are not, quite frankly, something that the American people have responded to with great shock and awe at this point. I mean, he was still elected after that Washington Post story revealed the good uh, the uh, NBC tape of him talking to Billy Bush. When in reality, the big story is the Mueller story you were just talking about. But this is what's grabbing some national headlines. It's almost acting like the good thing for the president, because quite frankly, this is a little bit less, I'd say, of a threat to his party and his career than the Mueller investigation. What does the uh, iHeartRadio filing for bankruptcy say about the future of talk radio? It's difficult to say. Terrestrial Radio has had a difficult time because a lot of the tech giants are eating up ad revenue, as you know, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. I heard, though, I will say, in defense of radio, is a little bit of an interesting and unique situation. It took a lot of private equity money in 2008 with the promise or the understanding that the debt would be restructured. And they were just never able to restructure the debt. So what they're doing now is they're filing for bankruptcy protection through a Chapter 11 filing, basically to say that they're going to offload $10 billion of that debt so that they can continue operations normally. And it's expected that their day-to-day operations continue normally. Right. So uh, terrestrial radio may limp along for a little bit longer. It'll evolve. It'll become digital. (laughs) It'll move into different ways. I mean, the same thing's happening with linear TV and newspapers. It's not that the content or the great journalism goes away. It just changes. It'll evolve just like we have, and we're not going away either. Sarah Fisher, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming in. Great. Thank you so much. Follow uh, Sarah and Jonathan Swan, Mike Allen, and all of our other good friends at Axios at Axios.com. Have a great Monday, folks. See you back here tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.